Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. It's a wonderful day. Heather's no longer under the weather. Last week, I got to hear my neighbor talk about Oedipus Rex at a, uh, a class I could audit for a day. I wish I could hear the whole class on all the classics, tragedies and all. And I'm thinking, and then Mayor Bloomberg, he's off the hook with the um, search and, uh, search and uh, frisk kind of thing, you know? He's, the courts are have his back, so he doesn't have to worry about that. He can conduct some good policy. Well, welcoming you today to Ask a Leaders, uh, August 13, 2013 edition. Of, I'm uh, going to step out of the comfort zone with you today of the Irvine OC bubble. First, we'll see what goes on in the uh, zip code adrift 91744 in La Puente and beyond in the San Gabriel Valley, east of LA, with Reverend Anthony Dockery of the St. Stephen Baptist Church. Then we head to New Jersey, where author Teresa Zarilli Edelglass weighs in on a protracted sex discrimination saga as an employee of the New York Transit Authority, as she talks about her recently published Thrown Under the Bus, The Rise and Fall of an American Worker. So she will be back after a short break. Stay with me all. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. We have on back with us. That was Ofer Haza. It's a, a particular, let's see here, the tune. That was um, Slave Dream, sort of a, set the tone. It wasn't, a, wasn't such a good scene there for our next guest here, who joins us. My, she is Teresa Zarilli Edelglass, and uh, she's the author of Thrown Under the Bus, The Rise and Fall of an American Worker. Born and raised in Staten Island, New York, author Teresa Zarelli Edelglass now resides in New Jersey with her husband, Scott, and their Karen Terrier Titan. we got to mention that because those pets have had a role in her life in, in sustaining her and her many cats. They are many cats. Teresa earned a Bachelor of Science degree from St. John's University in 1989 and an Executive Master in Public Administration in 1992 from Baruch College. She comes to us today from Jackson, New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Teresa Zarelli Edelglass. Thank you, Claudia. Thanks for having me. We are glad to start here. Let's start with, it was a bright picture for you at the beginning where you you demonstrate really a great deal of moxie in supporting yourself. You know, your father was no longer... Um, uh, supporting the family. He was sort of out of the picture. You got yourself an education. You put together a rock-solid work ethic from your early days all the way through your private sector and then public sector employment. It's It just seemed like no deed went unpunished in the good old boy network. So let's just talk about your bright start. Okay. Um, well, coming from the family that I came from, you know, work ethic, we're blue-collar people, um, my grandfather came over from Italy. You know, at that time, you came, you worked, and I just learned from him. And my father had his own business, and although he was pretty much an absentee dad, he was a hard worker. And um, <clears throat> albeit he wasn't around very much, uh, I did see how much he put into his own business. And then seeing my mom and dad have their problems made me realize that I had to be independent. I had to be self-sufficient. So I knew that I had to take a particular path, and I was the first one in my family to attend college, and I went the long, hard way. I spent 11 years putting myself through school. I moved out when I was 18, got an apartment, worked full-time, and did the grind, you know, in the city. I bartended, did a lot of different things, um, and it took me nine years to get my bachelor's degree. I took one year off, and then I went into graduate school into a full-time program, which is an accelerated executive program, to get my master's in public administration. And that I did for 72 Saturdays, because I was still working. <clears throat> and it was around that time that I started working for New York City Transit. And I guess the the auger of uh, the things to come was that your own employer um, denied you, you found out, the, uh, an opportunity to enroll in a managerial post, uh, postgraduate 
program, they could have been underwriting, but you didn't know that right away. You were eligible and you were um, a contender, but you found out otherwise. Yes, and at that time, that was actually long before the harassment started. That was the previous administration, and they were okay guys. I mean, they were pretty cool to work with, and they are the ones who actually gave me the two promotional opportunities, but I still had to fight for it. So even though they weren't really anti-woman, so to say, I think there was still an element of chauvinism there, and I think... You know, if I got it right, it seemed to me that perhaps they didn't want to see me go ahead um, onto a graduate education because they had bachelor's degrees. And I guess maybe in the back of their minds they were thinking, hmm, we could end up working for her someday. You know, the table could turn. So while I thought I had this opportunity before me, which was a mayoral scholarship program, uh, the Transit Authority gave two of those out every year. And I knew I was a shoe-in because I was the only one that applied. <laughs> so I knew I had the inside scoop. And one day I got called in the office and told, mm, that program is not for people in your title. And I knew I was being given the business, but I said, okay, you know what? Nothing I can do about it, but I'm going to recalibrate, going to go to plan B, and I'm going to get myself into graduate school. And by that time, I happened to love the public sector, thought it was noble, wanted to make my career there. So I looked into Baruch in Manhattan, and that's where I ended up going. Well, and folks, remember that this is uh, where, where um, our guest, Teresa Zerle Edelglass, has, has her sights set on the, the valiant uh, public sector um, professional track. So, what, so you found out, like I said, that no good deed went unpunished in the good old boy network first at the Staten Island Division of the New York City Transit Authority, and then later it was a, it was a depot assignment, correct, and maintenance? Yes, that was, that was actually uh, a, a retaliatory transfer to a bus garage, a place they knew I did not want to go. But once things started heating up, that's where they sent me. And you were a budget analyst when you were transferred to that other location? Yes, well, I had been, I was a budget analyst when I first started. Uh, then I became an associate analyst, which is the next step up. And then I got promoted to manager of budget and personnel and was in that position for a year. Uh, when things went south, that is when I got transferred. I had filed an internal uh, equal employment opportunity complaint. It was internal within the transit authority. And it was shortly after that that I got transferred to the bus garage. Well, I want for people to, I mean, you've already set the sort of the, the set, uh, given us your profile here. Uh, you are a woman of modest means and experience, and where you originally aspired to be a public sector executive as a budget analyst, you were, you were what turned out at the mercy and, let's say, uh, victimized sort of layer after layer in this. First, with the, there was the bureaucracy, then we'll talk about the legal profession, and the not-so-scrupulous clinicians that were there to uh, pronounce your physical and emotional state, and over the course of you're trying to get some kind of a remedy. So um, this, you you were doing this all alone. What was that? I mean, tell us a little bit. We're not going to do any spoiler alerts. There's a lot to read about. You know, it's a very, very personalized uh, uh May, uh, portrayal in your book, Thrown Under the Bus, The Rise and Fall of an American Worker, and we can let people know uh, about your, your website in a bit. Um, so tell us what it was like. You were on your own, and you were trying to figure out how to uh, get the right kind of, uh, know what the means were with the the uh, Office of Employment. Uh, the EOC was the one with the uh, Transit Authority. You hadn't gone to the um, the upper levels until later. Correct. So uh, what Tell us what it was like. You're, you're on your own, your perspective there. You, you uh, were a singular person. And that, this is something I want to explore a little bit more on how that works um, versus a, an established. I'm not just going to malign um, a, a public sector bureaucracy, but I'm thinking in any sort of large entity, uh, there's a way in which that individual is really marginalized. And that's the, yours is a case history of a marginalized employee. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it, I have to say in all fairness, though, I wasn't totally alone because I did have a friend who I talk about in the book, Stoney, and yes. he happened to be our labor relations director. <clears throat> and every 
division office. There were five boroughs of New York City, and each borough had a labor relations person, and he happened to be our labor relations person, and he was black. So it was me being the only female in the office and him being the only black in the office, and I think neither of us was really, you know, appreciated. And so when things started to happen for me, when things started to go badly, he was the first one there for me. So I wasn't totally alone. He was there to help guide me. And it's interesting that these people would have the moxie to go after someone who was a lawyer, who happened to be our lawyer, our division's lawyer. So you have to think about the, the, the extent of the nerve that these people had to not just go after me, but to go after the person who was actually there to mediate for the union workers, for anybody, anyone who happened to have an, a problem within the, the, you know, the office, he would be there to you know, sit and help them and guide them and direct them. And I knew that he was putting himself out on the line for me, but he's a man of great integrity. He was a good friend. He became a good friend. And he didn't really care what they were going to do to him to retaliate, but they did. So what, after they started going after me, they started going after him as well. But I think they were just looking for an excuse to go after him, so he gave them one. So the two of us were kind of together in this. You know, I filed my internal EEO complaint, and it was still very scary. But I believed in the system, and I thought the system was going to do right by me. I was young. I was naive. I was street smart, but I didn't really understand the system. I didn't understand the, the, the politics and how thick they were. I didn't understand the legal system. I had never had any dealings with lawyers. And I guess in retrospect, it's kind of foolish for me to have thought that my own employer would find in my favor. Because if your employer is harassing you, and then you go and you file a complaint within the organization, quite naturally, they're not going to find in your favor. Because by doing so, they're admitting guilt. And they're not going to give you that. So I think the smartest thing for them to have done would have said, yes, we're going to work things out with you and straighten things out. But in some organizations, like New York City Transit, they don't do that because they have a bullying culture. So, you know, getting to your point, being alone pretty much, aside from having Sony, was very scary because, you know, suddenly you're like poison. You know, one day you're friends with everybody, you're, you go to work, you come in smiling. I was always very productive and happy and positive and always looking to move forward and trying to find out the next best way to do things more effectively and more efficiently. But what I learned is that in government, they don't really want you to do that. Well, let's they talk want you to, yes. you know, kind of go at their pace. And if you start outpacing them, they're going to make sure that they take care of you, so, so to say. So it was a scary process. And it wasn't until I filed my, EE, my EEO complaint, the internal one, that I was shortly thereafter transferred to a dirty, filthy bus garage, a place they knew I did not want to be. And I dealt with a lot of sexual harassment there. And, you know, most of the people were nice, but, you know, they just weren't, I guess you could say, as evolved but being a girl from a blue-collar family, I, you know, I was patient with them. I understood that it wasn't that they were trying to be mean to me. It's just that they really didn't understand how to act. So we were from, I guess, we were from the same world, but then I was sort of branching away from that world. Um, but going through the process all along, alone, so to say, was, it was daunting. Well, it really was daunting. You had to figure out as you went along what to do next. And you couldn't make any mistakes because I can tell you when you go to court, they don't forgive you for any mistakes that you make. It's a chink in the armor. Well, let's, let's go back a little bit. Um, I mean, it, it is a paradox. You were of their world, but you were not of their world. So the, the blue-collar creds, I guess, uh, weren't, weren't necessarily what um, meshed there. It, uh, but Stoney, what was his record prior to your uh, asking his assistance as a, his, the labor relations director in that division? Did he, well, were you aware of a record? Yeah. Go ahead. His record with uh, assisting other employees, or was it? Were you sort of like more uh, his largest case ever? I would say so, considering the fact that we worked side by side. You know, so we were direct and immediate coworkers, and so we were members of management in the division's, you know, headquarters, mm -hmm. and so we were two of fifteen or so people. 
Anytime he had to represent someone, it generally was a bus driver or a bus mechanic, something to that effect. And, you know, the gentleman would come up to the division headquarters and they would go into the conference room and he would, you know, be there to represent them <clears throat> to make sure that, you know, or, or represent him, management, you know, whatever his job had to be at the time. Okay. And he had a good record. I mean, he did what he had to do. He was a hardworking person. Um, he kind of marched to his own drumbeat, I guess you could say, and I think they didn't like that. But, you know, aside from that, he probably was the last one out of the office every night. Um, he was a perfectly nice man, and there was no reason for them to ever go after him but for his color. Right, and so there, there's the culture. And it's, and when I'm thinking back in the early 90s, you know, that's when uh, there, there was... Nanita Hill was getting scrutinized closely, and she was talking about the her uh, workplace setting and that bureaucracy under Clarence Thomas. So there was there was a lot happening twenty short years ago, and uh, so you were. That's what I'm going to bring out here is that you really had common cause with a lot of people, but that wasn't that wasn't part of your sort of litigative portfolio. You were you were on your own and marginalized, and it, it wasn't probably with. But your disposition wasn't even clear to you what you were up against. That's what I'm trying to um, uh, have us all get our minds wrapped around at this point. I had no idea what I was up against. None. I believed in the system. I had never had any legal dealings in my life, maybe outside of a small claims matter. I really had no idea. I did not know that it was politics that drove the machine and not equality, equity, justice, those things are secondary. And it's not just in my case. This is the way it works. I was in, enmeshed in that matter for a good 19 years, and my husband, too, was enmeshed in a, a legal matter at the same time, a, a custody battle. Right. So I got to see not just the court system that I was in, in the federal court, but I got to also see what went on in the family court here in New Jersey. And, you know, what goes on isn't really much different. So I think that solidified for me what you are up against. You, you find a lawyer, you hope that that person is going to represent your best interests, and you believe that he is or that she is, and you trust them. And I trusted my lawyer, and that's another part of the story which as you know, he didn't do right by me. Uh, so you really are one person up against this huge machine, this huge system. And as you try to navigate your way through, you find out that you really are alone and that no one is going to do anything for you but you. And that's not going to be much, no matter how you try. For those of you who've just tuned in uh, to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guest this part of the show is Teresa Zarelli Edelglass, author of Thrown Under the Bus, The Rise and Fall of an American Worker, talking about making her case of uh, sexual harassment, sexual discrimination at the workplace at the New York City Transit Authority. Well, let's... Um, you know, let's let's really cover this. Let's talk about there was a real toll, Teresa, on your mental and your physical health. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. When I st first started there, I was a perfectly healthy person by all standards. I had never had any mental health issues. I don't come from a family with any mental health issues. So this is not something that I had ever experienced even with friends and family. If anyone had ever had anything like that, I can tell you I never knew about it. So this was all new. I, I didn't really understand what was happening to me. I knew that when the, the, day, the day that I got demoted was a shock. And I was called into the office, and I was told that, in, in quote, we tried you out, and now we're going to try out. The fellow's name was Carmine. He was my subordinate. And to some people, that might not sound like a lot. Okay, it doesn't sound so bad. It is when you put yourself through college for 11 years. You sacrifice everything. You know, your friends are out partying, and you're sitting there studying. You're trying to get good grades. You're always on that path. You know, you have your mindset on the path to success. So when your whole life is that path to success, and when you spend all of your time trying to get there, and you put all of your resources into that, and 
other people are partying and having a good time, and then you finally get there, and it is taken away from you all in the course of a day, that can take a, an immense, enormous toll on your mental health. Because if you know how your entity operates and the transit authority, I guess you could say had a bullying culture, you know how they operated, you see what they did to other people, and you know that when you get demoted, it's not just something that they're going to correct a week later. It's not something that you're going to go appeal to someone and say, hey, you know what, they did me wrong, and here's my case, hear me out, and they're going to just turn it around. No, it doesn't work like that. You're basically blacklisted at that point, and you know it, but I still believed that I could turn it around. So as I tried, I got sicker and sicker. The funny part is, is that I didn't really realize what was happening to my mental health. I don't think it funny. Was, I don't think funny is the word. The odd part. <laughs> yeah, you you don't realize it. I mean, I didn't have he- mental health benefits either. Right. That's so right. So it wasn't until my trial in 1997 that year. My trial was in March. My mental health benefits became active in January, and thank goodness, because by that time, I had become a lot sicker than I realized. I just didn't realize. I think what I was doing was just operating outside of my own body. I was just functioning. I knew, I I am a strong person, and I, I guess I just knew that I had to keep going. I had to pay my bills. I lived by myself. They knew that. They knew that I was totally you know, an independent entity, you know, sustaining myself on that paycheck, living hand to mouth. So I had to do whatever it was. And because I was in such a state of shock and because I thought I was going to get justice eventually and because I would not allow anyone to push me out of my job, I just kept going forward, not knowing the toll this was taking on me. So by the time my trial came, once my trial was over, I actually exhaled in a way that I can't even describe to anyone. It was like a, a, a relief, but, but the illness had already taken hold of me. So I got myself into therapy, got myself on medication, and started taking antidepressants, but I fell into a much deeper depression after that. You would think that I would have been happy. I won a lawsuit, dancing in the street, yay, celebrating. doesn't work like that. You think it's going to be a great thing, but after it happens and after you take that deep breath and you exhale, you realize that everything's all over. Your career is gone. You're more alone than ever. No one understands what you've gone through, and you don't really know where to turn. Now your only goal is to get better. Well, Teresa... Let's uh, talk about, we can see how driven you were in trying to seek justice within uh, the bureaucracy and get remedies for yourself. Um, It seems like that created like a blind spot of sorts that uh, didn't allow you, and I want you to look at that blind spot and what you can perhaps tell listeners is uh, what, what it would take for someone in your situation to be able to step out, look at your Uh, transferable professional skills and experience and take it to another employer before you got into such a deep rut? I think that's a very personal thing. Um, Again, I was pretty naive and pretty idealistic and believed the system would do right by me. But I can tell your listeners that that's not always the case. Sometimes it is. But I can tell you that even if you get justice, it's a long, hard, arduous process that can take a toll on you your partner, you know, if you're, you're married or whoever partner you have, if you have children, uh, extended family, it can take a toll on you and all of them. So you've got to be very careful in making that choice. If you are the kind of person that just doesn't want any confrontation, my suggestion is to, yes, pick up and go. Just go and find somewhere else to work. In my case, I knew that once I was demoted, I would not have that credential either. I could no longer go somewhere else and say, okay, it took me a long time to get into that managerial position. And that was, that was just, uh, you know, in and of itself, uh, uh, you know, stepping into something wonderful right, that that's doesn't a come along. Huge credential. Yeah, it was huge 
because there aren't many of those positions, uh, especially situated where that one was for me in Staten Island, and I lived in Staten Island, so this was fantastic. And this was my springboard, because my goal was to get into executive public sector management. Not necessarily there, in another agency, somewhere in the public sector. So I really did, like you said, I, I probably had that blind spot because I had my sights set on something very specific. But on the other hand, I'm a person of integrity, and I, and I do believe that you have to stand for something or else you stand for nothing. So I stood up and said, well, you're not going to push me out of my job. I'm going to leave when I'm ready to leave, not because you say you're a woman and we don't want you here. So I took that stand, and I guess I don't want to go too far out and, and sound crazy, but, you know, if people like Martin Luther King didn't do what he did and other such leaders, where would people be? So I think sometimes you have to take a stand, and sometimes you will be victimized and you will suffer, but you can only hope that after all that is said and done that other people benefit from it. And I do know, by the way, today that there are a lot of women in much higher up positions there. Well, that's what I want to get to, right. I'd like to think that maybe that kind of got the ball rolling. So that's what I wanted to conclude the interview with, any kind of redemptive aspect to this whole ordeal that you went through. Are there, for instance, that you know of, are there any ombuds practices that are uh, restructured, um, more responsive than um, were in your day uh, can, that you know about now? I, I don't. I don't know of any in particular, but I can tell you this. For many years, I wasn't able to speak to anyone from that organization because the pain was so great yes. that I actually couldn't even talk to the people who I had been friends with for years. So they sort of all faded away for a while. But until I wrote my book, I started coming back to myself and I finally was able to speak to people who are currently active members of New York City Transit. And I started reaching out to them because I want them to read my book. I want them to know what I went through. I want to spread the word. And I started getting onto social media like LinkedIn and, you know, Twitter and different things like that. And what I found was that the people that I connected with who are current employees, uh, have have much higher up positions. A lot of the women, that is to say, have much higher up positions. There was a woman who I sent a LinkedIn invitation to, who was a bus operator who is now a general manager. Oh, that my. is amazing! Wow, that she worked her way up from bus driver to general manager. That is a huge, huge accomplishment. We needed and her on the I, show. I responded to her and just said, "Yay!" Okay, <laughs> okay, great. Well, as we conclude, I just. I think all the listeners are a little on the, at the edge of their seat, leaning toward the old speaker, the, the laptop. How are you doing both physically and mentally today? Physically, I'm doing good. Um, I am, you know, a pretty you know, health-conscious person, so I always do eat right, exercise, and take care of myself in that respect. Um, you know, the anxiety is pretty bad still. Mm. Uh, I think that's something that may always be with me. I, I don't think when you go through something so traumatic that you ever actually just get past it all. You learn to deal with it. You get up every day. You treat yourself like a recovering addict. And you get up and you say, I'm going to make the best of this day. I'm going to do everything I can to be positive and productive and to help other people. It's why I wrote my book. I want to help other people. I want to see them be able to get through these situations, maybe, like you said, without the blind spot. And if they decide to take a stand, maybe they can navigate through the system better than I did. So I think these things all help my mental health. You know, there are days that I still feel a little depressed and I get in the doldrums, but I just try to, I have a mantra in my head and I say, don't, don't, don't go to sleep on the couch. Don't. Just keep moving forward, stay positive, and make the best of every day. And that's all you can really do. All right. Well, those uh, for those of you who've just helped us wrap this interview, it's on Ask a Leader 88.9 FM in Irvine. We've been talking to Teresa Zarilli, Adel Glass, author of Thrown Under the Bus, The Rise and Fall of an American Worker. You can get more information on a copy of her book. It's capital T, capital Z, 
underthebus.com. Uh, and uh, this is uh, uh, Teresa's new career is a woman of letters. She started off with this book, and will uh, will maybe some people will see her at the the book festival nearest you in the next year. You just keep an eye peeled, and it's Zerilli Z E R I double L I hyphen Edelglass. So Teresa Edelglass, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate and it. And all the best in mending all the way further. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. We are going to take a short break, and then we will have on our next half of the show, Reverend Anthony Dockery of the St. Stephen Baptist Church in La Puente. So stay with me. We'll be back in just a brief one. Thank you for everybody for staying with me. That was a lovely little Here Comes the Sun from Ofra Harnoy on her uh, her cello with accompaniment, a lovely accompaniment. So what we're going to do now is turn to my next guests, not one but several, back here on Ask a Leader. First, it's Reverend Anthony Dockery of the St. Stephen Baptist Church in La Puente. Reverend Dockery was born in Orlando, raised in Detroit. He received his Bachelor of Arts in Religion at the University of Laverne and his Master's and Doctorate of Divinity at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. He held a military career of 21 years in the U.S. Air Force and California Air National Guard as a pilot. His relationship with St. Stephen Baptist began in 1990 as a youth minister. In 1999, I hope I get put it in the best way here, the right way, he became a full-time minister of education and youth, an interesting time when he was seriously considering signing on as a pilot with American Airlines, not long before that airline was drawn into the September 11 airplane terrorist attack. In 2007, he was elected executive pastor, and the next year, he became senior pastor. He, along with his ministry's uh, administ- education administration, that's Reverend Jaron Singler and um, Ms. Davis, uh, administrator in the school there at St. Stephen, and Pastor um, uh, Reb- Reben. Uh, Reverend Jose Rebus. Jose Rebus. I'm sorry, I wrote that down so quickly here at the prep. So, Jose Rebus, so they come to us today in La Puente, that's 20 miles east of L.A. in the San Gabriel Valley. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Thank you Thank much. You. Thank you for having us. Thank Campbell. you. Well, we're glad all of you there are together to talk about the many, many things that you're doing in a very, very special part of of the region here. Let's first talk about La Puente and the increasing number of the surrounding communities which are similarly economically disadvantaged and St. Stephen's relationship to these communities. Reverend? Yeah, thank you. Um, Our whole mission and process here is to be God's servants in God's service and serve God's people. And uh, we've noticed just the um, impoverished uh, conditions just increasing rapidly uh, to the point where we even have uh, people living right on our front lawn, uh, which kind of got our attention. And so we're trying to get programs and uh, things in place to help minister and meet that need. Uh, and so we uh, have started a nonprofit called Servants Arms, and it's targeting three major areas that is uh, food and shelter, as well as clothing, um, also a drug and alcohol uh, program, and along with that. We're doing all we can for young people. Uh, you may already know, and the listeners may already know, that uh, if you are 12 to 18 and if you are impoverished, it is very difficult to have your child put into long-term care for free. It's, it's not, not there. Uh, however, if you're 18 or older, uh, there are plenty of things in, uh, in process to deal with that. And so we want to do what we can to meet that need. Uh, basically, if you haven't committed a crime or you don't have a mental issue as a teen, uh, you can't get free uh, care for drug and alcohol type issues. So we wanted to meet that need as well. And then the educational concerns. Uh, we wanted to make sure we had a first-class school in an impoverished area. So 
Our church does all it can to subsidize our schools so that we have top-notch teachers as well as staff, and it has really uh, proven to be a tremendous blessing as well with that. And so we're, we're trying to do what we can to minister in this neighborhood, in this area. Uh, we have our YAMI is what we call them, our Young Adult and Minors Minister, Reverend Jerron Singley, who is ministering to young adults and below. Um, and we have June Davis here as well, who is a, a principal of our school. And then Reverend uh, Jose Rivas, who we just brought on about a week ago. Oh, wow. Uh, to minister. Go ahead. Sorry. Yes, no, that's, oh, that's, go ahead. You were saying, I'm just, that's just this last week. So we're just covering it, right? As we're breaking all, uh, we're getting ahead of all the other media covering this uh, new, uh, exactly. new you're, you're right on the cutting edge. <laughs> you got breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> Scooping them all. Yes, exactly. Okay. So he just started a week ago and uh, he's been with us um, for about almost 10 years. But uh, we are just now becoming one within the last week, which is a tremendous blessing. Uh, he was bivocational for the last 10 years, um, finished his AA at China Island uh, Bible College. Uh, Reverend Singley just finished up his Master of Divinity at Golden Gate. Congratulations. And, uh, June Davis is finishing her Master's of Education with an emphasis in educational leadership at California Baptist University. And so uh, we have some, some uh, really qualified people doing some great things for a very impoverished neighborhood. And so uh, we praise God for that. And I did check it out. Some of the demographics for those closer to home here in Orange County, it's the median income of La Puente is one quarter the median income of Irvine, California. And it's rather comparable to uh, Santa Ana in Orange County. And uh, just so people can wrap their minds around the median income for a family in La Puente is about $41,000. And the per capita income for the city is 11000 I didn't check out what Irvine's is so for basin comparison. But that is below below what Santa Ana's per capita income per, per, per resident, uh, but comparable, uh, as I said, the median income. So that's uh, and it's it seems to be dropping too at that point. Well, among your services, I was able to uh, see uh, where was the it's a twice a month food bank, correct? That's correct. And that was it's about two hundred households that may come by for groceries that have been collected, and uh, without those groceries. They wouldn't have, perhaps for the next couple of days, anything. Absolutely. And, uh, and it's a blessing because we've connected with the L.A. Food Bank, which helps, although there's still a cost involved. What's really helping us to offset some of that cost is other community partners like uh, Walmart that gives us uh, meat for free. And a lot of food banks don't provide meat, and that's what really sets us apart as well. Uh, and so we do all we can with that. And if, if we could increase those resources, obviously we could give more. We're feeding on average now 2,000 people a month with just our small facility. And so uh, the need is tremendous. And that's one of the main reasons why we appreciate this opportunity to be on your radio show is to uh, garnish more support so we can meet more needs and the other reason for servants arms as well. Well, let's, while we're talking about servants arms, there is an opportunity to bring up, there is a, a fundraiser that you will be presenting actually nearby in Newport beach next month. It's on September 6th. And, and I know there's lots of lovely people in the office there with you, Reverend Dockery. So I, I haven't, uh, we'll get to that. But while you mentioned that what servants arms is doing, there'll be a, it's a dinner cruise extravaganza Friday, September 6th. And that would be at 2431 West Pacific Coast Highway. More information, folks. I'm going to slow it down, but it'll also be on the podcast and the podcast summary to call Chandra Howden. Is that right, Howden? Uh, area code 626-377-5914 or Ms. Hunters at 909-223-4718 or the website www.servantsarms.org. So that's September 6th uh, to help... Uh, out the folks there at St. Stephen with the many, many undertakings there. So let's, I, um, now let's get some of our, our, the, the staff that are expanding, the administrators that are expanding the curriculum. And I, um, it's St. Stephen's offers a Christian education two years through the eighth grade levels. And you have plans to expand the grades into high school. Is that correct? Yes, that is. Thank you so June much Davis? for allowing us to be with you today. We do have plans for a high school. Uh, right now we have a preschool. We've been established since 1999, and it's just been exciting to watch the program develop. We have a preschool. We have an elementary school that is entering into its fourth year, 
and we look to forward to expanding to middle school as well as high school. Uh, our theme for the school is reaching for excellence, and as Pastor Dockery has already uh, spoke about the uh, vision, we partner with the church. Not only do we partner with the church, but we see ourselves as the church, and so we we take on that vision as well, uh, but we look at the opportunity to be able to serve in the community as well. We have an affordable tuition, which allows the community uh, families to be able to have uh, an alternate option as far as taking on Christian education. Uh, as you did state, we do have a Christian curriculum which is outstanding and which is an opportunity to share uh, the good news of Jesus Christ with our students as well as our, our parents. Uh, we do have a Christian education from the Abeka curriculum. All of the academic subjects are taught. Uh, all of the academic subjects are uh, immersed with Christian values and biblical truths, and it does make our curriculum stand out. Uh, we also have uh, other one moment, Ms. introductions that we like to give to our students. We have um, speech meet. We have uh, spelling bee. We have math Olympics, and we have a science fair. Uh, this summer, we had the opportunity of uh, showing our students uh, inventors workshop, where they entered into engineering and they dealt with robotics. Uh, so we are looking for different types of uh, means and ways so that we can um, give our students the best opportunities as possible. Uh, as you did mention, we are in an impoverished area. We do have a diverse uh, student population. We have a diverse staff. We have the top-of-the-line staff, if I might say so myself. <laughs> our teachers have their master's degree, our teachers have their credentials, and our teachers have their bachelor's degree, which is unusual to see that in a uh, private school. And so we pride ourselves in that. Um, we also look forward to the opportunity to provide our students with the essentials of education, uh, to make our education relevant. And in this day and age, we're looking at education, looking at moving into the 21st century, which is um, a hot topic for education. Uh, but the main thing is the opportunity to be able to provide a Christian education. And that, uh, yes. Let's talk about that. That in itself is a hot topic. I think many listeners, they're not aware of the changes in the curriculum that publicly supported faith-based education centers are offering. Can you tell us about the changes from the, the middle of 2000s into uh, now what that faith-based curriculum can uh, be availed with the public funding? Uh, yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. The uh, public school system is venturing into uh, areas that um, are... That, that are not part of the Christian curriculum. As part of the Christian curriculum, we can talk about values, we can talk about morals, we can talk about um, Bible truths and, and principles, whereas in the public school, the public school is moving into areas where education is becoming a little more general, where they can talk about um, families of, of uh, different types of, of families. Uh, where the, the parents do not really have a say in that. Uh, so the Christian education is different in the sense that we can maintain uh, our focus around character and around uh, Christian values and thoughts. Uh, well, while we talk about those values, uh, can you tell us about the uh, extent to which um, social justice uh, uh, and uh, Religious tolerance are a part of the curriculum, please, Ms. Davis. Social justice as part of our curriculum, right? Or as as a, as a value in the in the school setting, is there is that a part that's addressed? Uh, yes, that is part of our um, our part of what we have at our school. Um, you know that, as I said, the Christian curriculum is uh, different in the sense of what we can focus on. Uh, in this day and age, when we look at what is going on in the society, it gives us an opportunity to hone in on some of those particular topics uh, where we can really talk about it from a Christian perspective. We have our students are, have the opportunity to be part of 
chapel once a week. And in that chapel, we have Reverend Singley, who is uh, officiating in our chapel, which gives him the opportunity to share with our students from a biblical perspective, using scripture to line up with everyday life. And uh, that is a very uh, important aspect for our students because Christian curriculum is not something that is, is far-fetched. It's something that they can uh, use and live with from a day-to-day basis. Well, let's give Reverend Jaron Singley, uh, a, a, if you can, in a brief moment. Let, um, maybe there's a sort of a, a, a case study, a, an anecdote to relay where you were able to reach reach a student with, with that in mind. Something, uh, something, a narrative for us to have here on Ask a Leader. Is Reverend Singley? Well, I think when we present topics such as um, thinking about the, you know, the character of God and God being loving and how he wants all of us to show love and care and concern for one another, uh, regardless of what a person looks like or what they believe, um, you know, that's something that we would regularly address in chapel and also as part of the curriculum that they use for, for their Bible studies. Um, when we think about tolerance, one of the main things we want them to understand is um, you can tolerate and accept and, um, you know, walk and, 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 and even um, be friends with someone who has different beliefs than you. Uh, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to believe the same things. We can disagree and still be accepting and still be loving and caring, um, and, um, and you still have the right to have your opinion. So, you know, just them being aware and understanding that um, that each person has value, that they're created specially um, in God's eyesight, and that God has a special plan for each and every life, um, and that we have to honor that. Um, at the same time, we can stand for the truth um, that we believe and allow others to stand for what they believe as well. Well, I certainly uh, want to keep open an opportunity for the alumni for the speech meets the spelling bees and some of these other programs that are part of St. Stephen to um, to come back on Ask a Leader. I've had lots of really um, amazing uh, arcs uh, presented by students in different districts, Irvine Unified, Santa Ana nearby. So I, I'd like to keep St. Stephen, put, keep me on your dance card, your your uh, sermon card, as it were, uh, so we can you know, follow up with uh, what's going on there. For those of you who've just joined us, we're about to wrap up. I can't, I should mention earlier for you all to know, we have on with us from St. Stephen Baptist Church, Reverend Anthony Dockery, along with administrators and uh, clerics, uh, uh, Reverend Jaron Singley, Ms. June Davis, and Pastor Jose. See, I'm still, I, I wrote it so quickly. Rebus. 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 Right. Okay, that, that's what the hazard of my uh, getting my uh, my note taking here on the fly here. So um, they are with the this congregation is located in La Puente, as I've said earlier, just 20 miles east of downtown L.A. and uh, really uh, providing a number of a curriculum for students in the catchment areas they were talking about nearby. And uh, as Reverend Dockery has mentioned to me, he's reaching out in Taiwanese, Chinese, uh, and Vietnamese, and I'm, I'm not sure, uh, other languages. And they're coming back in with the, an English curriculum there at St. Stephen. And adding on now, they're going to be the uh, high school um, the grades coming up. So um, th- we've talked about the catchment So uh, the... Uh, tutorial ministry is what is preparing primarily high school students for higher education, for aspiring to higher education. I don't know which one of you would like to close the interview with giving us uh, how you're sending them on their way through your tutorial ministry. Well, our tutorial ministry has been around for, and this is Reverend uh, Singley, uh, Thank for you. Um, quite a few years now. And basically, you're right, most of the students that are taking advantage of that are those that are in um, high school. However, it is open to those who are in junior high school and even um, elementary school. Good. Um, the tutors are available and, and, and willing to help with that. Um, part of what we're looking forward to do, at least what I'm excited about in the future, is um, using and utilizing part of what Servant's Arm is doing to be able to reach back into the community. Um, and, and I think Pastor Rivas may even be able to kind of assist with this. Please. But really looking to start um, some tutoring services at schools, which is something that we really weren't able to do as a, as a church. 
um, um, and partnering with schools to have tutoring and other educational um, things and also maybe even teach things about um, some, some life virtues and things. Um, but Servants Arms would be, a, I think, a catalyst to really getting um, closer uh, to the community by being in the local schools. Pastor Rebus, would you like to add to that as we're closing? Uh, well, yes, definitely. Uh, I mean, as you mentioned and as everybody mentioned, uh, uh, this ministry is located in La Puente. And all those areas around La Puente, like Baldwin Park, El Monte, West Covina, Covina, they have a lot of people who speak Spanish. And um, I just came in and was blessed to be part of this uh, ministry to make that connection. Okay. This is an uh, English-speaking ministry primarily, but now they're going to have a venue for the Spanish speakers and all those, uh, uh, all those uh, health or resources that this ministry uh, is providing by the grace of God and for the help, or with the help of a lot of people. Uh, so we're going to be part of it and make that connection between the English uh, speaking, uh, between the English speaking people to with uh, Spanish uh, speaking people. Well, that's wonderful. It looks like uh, you're. You're many things to many people with a great deal of need, all of you. I want to certainly laud your, your, your uh, raising a level of awareness for all of us about where that transition is occurring with faith-based educations. And I, I, I applaud wherever you're able to promote uh, three things, the, um, the, the aspiration of, to higher education, the uh, social justice, and religious tolerance throughout. And I... I I wish you all well in continuing in on that, and I, I thank you all for for being on Ask a Leader this morning here on Radio KUCI. Streaming, I hope I hope everybody's streaming over La Puente on KUCI.org here on the web. So, uh, Reverend Dockery and Reverend Jaron Singley, Ms. June Davis, a, a principal there at... Uh, the at St. Stephen's School and Pastor Jose Rebus. I want to thank you all for being on Ask a Leader and thank you for sending me some uh, choral music from a service in July, which we're going to pair with your interview today. All the best to all of you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having us, All righty. We'll stay in touch and please send me some alumni. I can't wait to have them on the show. All righty? Very good. We will do it. Okay, here we go. Thanks again. Have a good service coming up, and uh, we're, this is the the choir. The um, it's the sanctuary choir. All of you, the best. Well, everybody, we're going to close out with the sanctuary choirs I mentioned, and that's all the time we have on Ask a Leader. Next week, we're going to have on Casey Kaplow, who will take a whole new level to a whole new level. The pop-ups next week in Los Angeles, hosting. Listen to this. A pop-up fellowship, a week-long exchange of ideas between prominent local community activists and five, count them, international innovators working for social change around the globe in the Good Is Project. You can put this on your calendar now, but we'll be covering it as it's happening next Tuesday. And then you'll hear from UC Irvine doctor, uh, physician, Dr. Scott Haldeman, whose work locally has been going into world spine care as bone and joint disease looms larger as a health problem, you are not the only one with a pain in the neck. Next up is always Senior, Senor George Rosales with George Had a Hat. And of course, my dear friend Heather McCoy will have her music show on at 6 this evening. Talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you.